1: Hi, this is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by William Adler, who is the author of Engineering Expansion, The U.S. Army and Economic Development, 1787 to 1860. Um, and this is a fascinating and lovely read that was published by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2022. 2021, 2021. Thank you. Um, and it is really interesting because it explains a lot about what was going on in the United States that nobody's really paid all that much attention to, in terms of the role of the army as it was called then, um, and economic expansion and sort of setting up the kind of industrialization that we're follow but i'm gonna let william tell us all about this i'd like to william welcome william edler to the podcast and ask him to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this fascinating project
2: thanks so much for having me on it's a real pleasure um and thank you for your kind words about the book and everything else um I will uh, give you sort of the very brief biography and then, and then sort of plow forward. Um, I'm uh, an associate professor of political science at Northeastern Illinois University in Chicago. Um, prior to that, I was uh, for two years uh, on a postdoc at Johns Hopkins, and I did my graduate work at the City University of New York Graduate Center. Um, and so this project actually originally grew out of my dissertation work, Um, uh, at at CUNY, Um, and the study was the whole time uh, uh, of the US Army's role in economic development. Um, And uh, uh, what got me interested originally in these questions was, um, uh, I guess you could call it my uh, frustration at some of the readings I did when I was a graduate student um, in the field of American political development specifically, but sort of more broadly about how we talk about early America um, As kind of this uh, uh, almost nomadic, rootless, stateless place, the Wild West, um, where people just went and made their fortunes and staked out the frontier. And in the scholarly literature, where there was no apparent state visible to the average American. Um, And obviously, uh, um, one place I picked up on this was reading Stephen Skowronik's classic book on building the new American state, um, where he focuses mostly, obviously, on developments in the late 19th, early 20th centuries. Um, But uh, um, in the uh, first chapter of the book kind of talks about, well, what came before this? Well, before this was this state of courts and parties in which the courts adjudicated uh, uh, judicial functions um, and the parties handled routine economic distribution tasks. And that's all there was. And the federal government did a couple of things well, but not much. It was very small. There was a tiny little army. It didn't do a whole lot. And we can kind of move on now. Um, and I was always kind of struck by this as being extremely incongruous just from having read a little bit about what happened in early America. It didn't kind of jibe with what I thought, uh, uh, according to the things in history that I had read, actually occurred. And so that's what kind of got me down this road of, well, what did really happen? And let's think a little bit more about uh, uh, how to understand that.
1: And you go through this book, and it's it's a it's a really systematic study of the role of the army um, as it existed, you know, from the time of the Constitution moving out of the Articles of Confederation to the Civil War. So we have this new republic um, that's gone through two constitutions, and the army exists. Um, but you also talk about this in terms of understanding how we don't think about the army in particular ways that it operated during this time. Can you explain a little bit about how you started to think about the role of the army within the economic republic in particular?
2: Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So I I started thinking about it first in terms of Well, what happened? There were these wars of expansion. We all know about stuff like that, the Mexican-American War and the War of 1812, which was kind of a failed expansionary attempt in some ways to to grab a piece of Canada or to kick the British out. Um, And it's been perceived in different ways, obviously. And then there were all these Native American tribes that were here that over time we got rid of. Um, the U.S. military got rid of them uh, and somehow, right? So this must have all happened somewhere, somehow. Um, and so who was controlling all this and how was it happening and what were the politics of this? And then as I was looking at it and starting to think about the different sort of categories of what the army might have done here, it, it started to become clear to me that one of the central themes of what the army was doing was doing things that were designed in some ways to affect the course of economic development. Um, and so the creation of, for example, the Army Corps of Engineers and then the attendant Army Topographical Corps of Engineers that was spun off from it for a, a big chunk of this time period that I'm looking at, our um, efforts at taking engineering expertise that didn't really exist in any other forms in early America and using them to create opportunities uh, to, to, you know, build roads or, or help build the railroads, to clear rivers, for commerce, and nobody made any bones about this. It was really explicit in the way politicians, presidents, the Secretary of War, and other people within the military command structure, talked about all these things, that they were doing it for economic purposes. And then it became clear to me, well, all of this has economic effects. Simply expanding your territory has an economic effect. Thinking about the types of, of uh, a trade that the U.S. was going to be engaged in, um, thinking about what it would mean to have this continental nation and how we got to that point, obviously meant... We had done something to, to make this happen um, and not to portray it kind of as all, you know, linear. Oh, this is all, you know, shooting upwards. And it was always like that the whole time. Obviously, it's not that simple of a story, um, but but there's a lot going on there that I, I, I felt like this required a lot more careful examination.
1: And and you do this careful examination. And, and one of the first things that you talk about is you sort of position the um, the sort of management of the new republic as either central in Washington D.C. and along the East or on the periphery, which is where the army seems to have more responsibility and more traction. Um, can you explain about how we should sort of conceptualize this kind of center and periphery with the role of the army?
2: Yeah, so so I basically um, very early in the book draw that distinction that you just mentioned between what's going on in the state of the center versus the state of the periphery, and I don't think it's a clear d- dividing line between the two. Um, but basically, you can conceive of the state of the center as the established population populated areas of the country, beginning obviously on the eastern coast, and then as the nation expands and settlement moves further westward, that state of the center kind of grows and follows with it. And the state of the periphery are those areas near and out towards the frontier where what's happening is all new. Um, And in particular, thinking about who controlled what was going on in those regions, I think is where uh, the book gets some of its traction from is that the army obviously is important in what's going on in the center of the nation and, and does a lot of important work, but on the periphery, the army is everywhere. Nothing happens without it. Um, you know, you think about something like, uh, the, the post office, which Richard John and others have shown was hugely important to the development of, uh, a national consciousness and, um, Uh, the first communications network that made possible the ability to communicate across long distances and how vital that was for the Republic in its early years. Um, In the center, it happened. But on the frontier, it's utterly impossible without the army's forts, the army protecting the roads, all of that. The mail is often literally delivered at the forts out there. Um, All of it is impossible without that infrastructure in existence. And importantly, because of the fact that there's no congressional representation of those new territories yet, they don't have a voice in governance, and the people who are in charge of the government, certainly they have interests and things they care about on the frontier, but kind of those routine day-to-day questions simply kind of are left to the army to figure out on their own. And so the army ends up with this enormous amount of latitude to do what it will, uh, out, out in the peripheral regions.
1: And one of the things that I thought was really interesting in the way that you talk about sort of the role of the army, um, in general is that it isn't an elected representative. Um, and we have this new form of government with, uh, you know, with, sort of elected representatives in a form of democracy. And yet here's the army making all kinds of decisions in all kinds of ways without necessarily having any like basis. Is that yeah. correct?
2: Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I I think to a large degree it is. Um, for example, even to the extent the congressional committees that on military affairs that existed in this period of time, even to the extent that they were, interested in what the army was doing. And, and they certainly were at many times. Um, you know, first of all, we all know there are certain things that Congress just isn't going to be able to, to deal with all the details of every single thing. But in particular, for the military budgets, they didn't line item almost anything. Instead, they just gave lump sums and said, here's the amount for the Army Corps of Engineers this year. And that was it. Um, here's the amount for the Army Topographical Corps of Engineers this year. And that was it. And sometimes the budgets went up and sometimes they went down. And so there were, you know, debates about those sorts of things in Congress. But except for the very most high profile issues, um, they just weren't that interested in the details of what was going on on the periphery. Um, Forts are being built here or there. Should we build the forts in a line? Should we build them expanding westward? There were a lot of issues involved, and none of those were Congress's responsibility in any meaningful way. Um, The Secretary of War made a lot of these decisions, or Army bureaucrats in the engineering corps made these decisions. And one of the reasons for that also was the fact that the men who ran the bureaus within the War Department stayed for incredibly long periods of time in their jobs, Um, literally decades upon decade. In some cases. So, for example, one of the men that I focus on a lot, John J. Aber, who was the head of the Army Topographical Corps of Engineers, served in that job um, from 1829 to 1861. I mean, that's just absolutely astonishing. You know, you talk about like someone like J. Edgar Hoover or something by comparison. Um, and before that, of course, by the way, it's worth noting, he was the deputy to the person who started the Topographical Corps of Engineers. So he was there for virtually its entire existence as as a bureau. Um, and, And it was true in many of these other areas as well. And so they had this enormous latitude because members of Congress, certainly in that period of time in general, did not stay anywhere near that length of time. And so Congress often just kind of deferred to those bureaucrats to decide on their own a lot of the details of these policies.
1: And I mean, I found that really interesting as well, because you find some of these guys, and they're all guys who have been in some office for like 30 years. And you're like, how does that happen before also the civil service? Um, and, And so you're like, huh. That's interesting. Um, and nobody like replaced him, and it wasn't a patronage position. Yeah, but and- <laughs> that's also what's
2: really interesting, though, because if you're thinking about it as a state of courts and parties, if parties are controlling everything, well, when the Jacksonians come in, why don't they just replace all these guys with patronage appointments? And they don't. They just don't. Um, and so it means that these people last across administrations, across party control, shifts in party control, that they're not affected by the patronage regime of the time. Um, and, And that's really something.
1: And I, I mean, I found that to be absolutely fascinating that they kind of they, they were like Hoover and they kind of like lasted everybody um, who changed position. And you talk about the fact that like the secretary of war and, and the secretaries of the army have all of this power um, that we don't really think about them having in a kind of institutional sense because they're, you know, they're supposed to take their orders from the president, blah, 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 blah. Um, but you articulate in the book and in the research that they were the ones who are making all these decisions, who are figuring out how the the army is gonna operate, where it's gonna build forts, as you say, what kind of forts, you know, how they're gonna position and understand the land. They start surveying, as you say, the natural resources. This is this is amazing.
2: Yeah. And and I think it's really astonishing because, again, because we kind of associate this early period of governance with a weak administrative state. um, And we kind of generally think of the administrative state only coming into being, you know, mostly in the progressive era, the New Deal. um, And maybe if you want to really push the issue, you know, you see glimpses of it emerging during the Civil War, when the American state has to suddenly expand in a vast way to deal with the 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 pressures of the war um and i find i think that that a lot of this really begins a lot earlier that you see the glimmers of it in the war department first before you see it anywhere else in this period that i'm thinking of um and it comes from the Secretary of War. It comes from the commanding general of the army. It comes from the heads of these bureaus within the War Department who outlast the Secretary of War <laughs> by, again, by decades upon decades. Um, and also, we should note, in terms of uh, uh, coercive army activities from the officers in the field who you know are making on-the-spot decisions about what they should do often in direct violation of their orders. Um, but even when they're not directly violating their orders, they just have this vast discretion because they're so far removed from Washington, DC from the men who actually control them. They can send a letter back. And by the time they, that letter gets there, they're finally receiving the response to the last letter that they sent. Um, that, you know, until the invention of the telegraph, you know, the, and even then, the, there weren't telegraph lines all the way out to these peripheral regions when they were fighting the war in Mexico or whatnot. There's an extraordinary amount of, of, of flexibility for these officers on the ground. And so just one example, you know, Andrew Jackson, on two separate occasions, when he was still a general in the army, on two separate occasions, invades and conquers Florida from the Spanish With absolutely no authorization. And in fact, the second time around, the Secretary of War, who at the time was James Monroe, wrote Jackson to say, under no circumstances are you allowed to go back into Florida. And Jackson just does it anyway. And then afterwards, Monroe and the Madison administration are kind of like, okay, I guess maybe we can negotiate a treaty and try to take Florida from the Spanish since you're already there. Um, And it's kind of, you know, the the tail leading the horse kind of situation.
1: And and I wanted to ask you because you talk about the fact that the army's coercive power is really an important dynamic in understanding its role in this this sort of peripheral area of the United States that is being developed where native americans are being pushed out of land that they had been living on um and and to some degree there's also, you know, our understanding of what the role of the military is which is to be coercive, to use force. Um, And can you explain how the army works as a coercive agent in this period of time, both in peace and in war?
2: Yeah. So the army does a whole bunch of different things in terms of coercion in this time. Um, Obviously territorial expansion. That's the big one. And the Mexican American war, the wars against native American tribes. And I think we properly should categorize them as wars against sovereign entities Even before the removal policy was officially put in place by the Jackson administration, there are dozens and dozens of these um, efforts at either pushing out native tribes or white settlers go out there and then the army kind of shows up and says, "Okay, well, the natives have got to leave now because the white settlers have come. It's now ours Um, or. Uh, uh, you know, they're negotiating a treaty and they send someone, uh, you know, one of the agents of the Indian office and, uh, oh, look, there just happens to be a brigade of uh, of soldiers standing there for no particular reason whatsoever. We're not threatening you. We're just kind of standing around here reminding you that we exist and could threaten you if we wanted to. Um, and it's kind of the backdrop to all of this. Um, The army also um, builds this system of forts across the nation, uh, eventually, which supports its efforts in doing all the other things that it's involved in. The army is also deeply involved in enforcing the rule of law across the nation, starting from incidents such as the Whiskey Rebellion under President Washington, forward to many other incidents in which the army is used to uh, uh, carry out uh, uh, the demands of the national state, um, in particular in fiscal affairs and enforcing the tax laws, but in many other areas as well. Um, and, and the removal of native tribes, as I mentioned. Um, and, and so the army is used those ways um, in, in kind of what are the, the traditional coercive functions uh, of any military. Um, but again, something that I think we don't talk about enough um, in when we talk about how the American state operates.
1: And, and so that's sort of the groundwork of chapter one. In chapter two, you talk about an interesting construction, the army's socioeconomic role, which, again, is not usually what we give to the army as a role that we think about them having. Um, but this really has a key component to the sort of basis for rapid industrialization that transpires in the United States, where we start mining, um, natural resources, where the railroad tracks end up going. Um, can you explain what it is that the army has with regard to this socioeconomic role?
2: Yeah. Um, you laid out some of it there already, but, uh, but basically, Um, These are kind of all the the other actions that the army is involved in, the non-coercive side uh, of what the army is doing in this period. Um, The Army Corps of Engineers, first of all, we should note, is for many decades the only engineering school in the nation. Um, And even when the private engineering academies start to open up, um, they're very small at first. So if you want a trained engineer for the first 40 to 50 years of the nation's existence, it's coming out of the West Point Military Academy. Either that person's still in the army and you're borrowing them, which the army for a period of time did allow the en- army engineers to go into private service for what periods of time, often to work for the railroads. Um or there's somebody who was trained by the army and now has left. And that engineering expertise came about because they were trained by West Point. Um, and, and this sort of expertise was vastly in demand and extremely lacking at the same time. So the fact that the army is providing, it is hugely important again for economic development. Um, but also in terms of the army's role in, in helping to, 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 um, you know, create this administrative apparatus that has the capacity to do this kind of thing. So then you have the Army Corps of Engineers itself, um, which is involved in many of these activities, helping the railroads, oftentimes directly uh, uh, planning and helping to build those railroads, uh, uh, roads on the frontier, uh, bridges, the dredging of rivers and the building of harbors, supporting lighthouses, um, all of these things to help clear the space, literal space, physical space, to make commerce possible in their wake. Um, And then the Army Topographical Corps of Engineers, which is spun off from it in the 1820s, um, which focuses primarily on surveys, surveys of the frontier, surveys of the West, um, but also surveys of potential natural resources. And so the topographical Engineers go out, they locate where these resources might be, they publish their findings, and then it becomes possible for private entities to come out and seek to develop and mine those resources uh, as a result of that. Um and in particular, the topographical corps of engineers become extremely important because they get involved in the debates over where the railroads should be going. This becomes extremely important in the 1850s in the context of the transcontinental railroad debates. Um, and this does become a high profile issue in Congress uh, and in national politics. And the topographical engineers get deeply involved in those debates. Because what happens is eventually Congress sort of throws its hands up and says, okay, we give up. Uh, We can't figure it out. We don't know what to do because we're having all these disputes. We have four possible lines, you know, that can go transcontinental um there's a, a extremely northern route and extremely southern route and two in between and we don't know which is the best and so what we're going to do is because we recognize that the topographical engineers have all this expertise um we're going to create these things called the pacific railroad surveys and we're going to hand it to them and say you figure it out and tell us which one we should do um They didn't call it this at the time, but, you know, kind of like the the blue ribbon commission of its day or whatever. Right. And they hand it to the topographical engineers and the topographical engineers say, OK, well, we'll go and check and see which one is the best. And uh, they come back a couple years later and say, we've done the work. And it turns out that the best possible route from an engineering perspective is the southernmost route available. Um, And the Southern members of Congress are thrilled at this result. And everybody in the North is not so thrilled at this result. And so it doesn't happen then, um, because it gets intertwined with the politics of slavery. Um, And so that eventually, as I talk about in the book in more detail, kind of is the point at which the topographical engineers lose the ability to have this autonomy and eventually the topographical core is folded back into the regular Army Corps of Engineers uh, in the early years of the Lincoln presidency.
1: And and I did find that that whole dynamic really fascinating because again, somebody who's in an office for 30 years or 20 years and sort of understands ways that these things can work can also manipulate things. Um, and and Congress, as you say, particularly when it comes to railroads, Congress is always like, yeah, we don't have the expertise. Let's find somebody else to do it. Um, and, and they never think they can figure that out, which maybe they're right on. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you also talk about in the book the control of the use of force um, in terms of the role of the army, which is different than state police um and local police uh and also you talk about the the way that the army sort of operated in context of the territories and the states where they had governors and they had some capacity for force but the army had some more capacity for force
2: yeah um and kind of what what's going on here is that you know, there are these state militias, um, which obviously, when we talk about military force in this period, we tend to think of a lot, um, because we, we think so much about what happened during the Revolutionary War, and the failures of the militias and Washington's anger at, at, at the militias and his need to, to have a more professionalized force. Um, so the Constitution grants all this power to the new national military that it creates to have a standing army controlled exclusively by the national government, um, to be able to call the state militias into national service, which happens on many occasions, including during the Whiskey Rebellion in uh, the Washington administration, in addition to the use of the regular army there. Um, And so the army now has this capacity. Um, It's still a relatively small force. Um, The size of the army, with the exclusion of the War of 1812 and the Mexican American War, the size of the army in terms of the number of soldiers in this period never exceeds about 12,000, 13,000 in peacetime, um, which for the size of the country that it becomes is not a lot. Um, but those soldiers are sent to where they are needed during those occasions when force is required, such as battles against native tribes. You know, I think of the Seminole Wars, of which there were several, and at one point, three quarters of all the soldiers in the army are stationed in Florida fighting the Seminoles. Um, and so, the army sort of becomes central to a lot of those issues of uh, a national governance at the time. Of you know, where are white settlers going to live? What is the nation's? Boor- what are the nation's borders going to look like? And questions of that nature. And then, on some of these very high profile issues, well, the president is simply in charge. If it's a wartime scenario, with the exception of the War of 1812, where Madison kind of takes a back seat, the president is highly, deeply involved in a lot of the details. Um, in battles against native tribes, the most high profile ones, Um, The wars against the tribes of the Ohio Valley during Washington's presidency, the Black Hawk War in what's now Iowa, Illinois, Wisconsin, um, the wars against the Seminoles, the removal of the Cherokees. So in things like that, the president is deeply involved in the details. Congress cares about the details, although they, they don't control it. It's really under the president's purview for the most part. But then there are all these dozens and dozens of other incidents where the President sometimes is involved and sometimes not. And then you go into the War Department command structure a little bit to see, is the Secretary of War getting involved in these? Sometimes he is. But then there are the lower level ones. Maybe it's the commanding general of the army instead, who's handling the operational details, rather than the Secretary of War or the President. And so... You know, to some extent, that's kind of the thing you anticipate in a command structure, that not everything will reach the top levels. By the same token, a lot of times important decisions are just happening. And then the people in Washington are just sort of taking them as a fait accompli. Uh, okay, well, I guess that's what we're doing um, because uh, it's already done. So that's the way it's going to be. Um but it really varies because the the closer to the center you get, the easier it is for the officials in Washington to control what the troops are doing, um, and the 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 further away you get, the harder it becomes.
1: And and so it really is this question of not having quick communication as well that mm-hmm. that sort of defines the capacity of people who are further in the periphery to be able to act more autonomously in this right. regard. Absolutely. Um one of the points that you make that's broad throughout the book is this question of sort of how the army also was important in pulling the country together. Um, it is, it's a far flung country as the the Western expansion transpires. And as there's the implementation of a new constitutional structure, and nobody exactly knows how everything works. Um, and the army, as you argue, sort of, is trying to make sure that the West, I think I, I wrote the sound West is attached to the rest of the union, the rest of the country. Can you explain how that is something to think about conceptually, as well as like on the ground?
2: Yeah, definitely. It, it's really interesting to me, because uh, we, we kind of the way we sometimes tell the story about the Civil War and the breakup of the country is there are these moments of compromise, the Missouri Compromise, and then the Compromise of 1850, and then the debates over Kansas, Nebraska, and then eventually that leads down the road that eventually takes us to secession. Um, But the truth of the matter is that there were constant secessionist threats throughout this period. Um, They waxed and waned, obviously. uh, But there are all these times when uh um states or parts of the country say, Okay, we're done here. Um, <laughs> and in many of those instances the army is brought in to hold the nation together. Um so take for example the nullification debates with South Carolina and the tariff under Jackson. Um So this is something that I think is relatively well known. But what's not relatively well known is that Jackson's proclamation to South Carolina that eventually convinced them to give up threatened military force against South Carolina if they didn't turn back from their nullification attempt. Um, And the threat was very real. Nobody doubted that Jackson would come down there with a force and conquer South Carolina if he needed to. Um, and, and there are all these other moments where the the Federalists in the Northeast during the War of eighteen twelve, when it's not going well, and form a secessionist effort. Uh, when Louisiana is first brought in after the Louisiana Purchase, it's not clear that the U.S. is going to be able to hold on to these regions. Um, there are these secessionist threats, but also just the possibility of things spiraling off into multiple little countries, um, which was a real threat. Hamilton discussed in the Federalist Papers, I think like six, seven and eight or something. Um, and, and it's a very real threat that they're very much aware of, that if you have these peripheral regions that are far away and difficult to communicate with, how do you hold them into the Union with? Uh, uh, without using extraordinary force all the time, which isn't obviously very realistic. Um, but then again, sometimes the threat of force or the the knitting together of the country through commerce and trade or through the construction of a network of roads and forts and railroads um, helps keep things in line. Um, and the army is all over those details.
1: Before you started this project, did you have a great deep background in the history of the Army of the United States?
2: <laughs> um, no, <laughs> I did not. Um, I knew a little. I knew a little about some of the conflicts and I knew a little about some of the presidencies and. Um, and uh, um, uh, not, not at anywhere near the level of detail I now have, um, certainly, as, as, you know, any research project goes, um, where by the end, you're swimming in details um, that nobody except you could possibly care about. Um, <laughs> uh, I think somewhere in the book, I cite this thing where I was sitting at the National Archives one day as I was doing some of the research for this, and I came across a letter written from Vice President Aaron Burr to the Secretary of War, Henry Dearborn, and I'm just kind of staring at this thing for a while going, why is Aaron Burr writing to the Secretary of War? And it turned out that he had some questions about floating batteries in the harbor of New York that he wanted to discuss. And I think I stuck this in a footnote somewhere in the book, and it was just kind of this, I don't really know what's going on here. As far as I know, Aaron Burr has never shown up in any other meaningful way in any discussion of the Army. Uh, But here he is talking about floating batteries in the harbor of New York. And uh, if somebody wants to turn this footnote into an article, that would be great. But I'm not, but you know, all these little things that pop up. so uh, no, certainly I was not.
1: <laughs> and, and so I, I wanted to ask you the question because in reading this book, obviously, I have become very enlightened as to the role of the army and how it operated. But I was also surprised periodically by some of the things that it did. So I wanted to ask you what was the most surprising besides Aaron Burr writing this, letter to Dearborn about batteries in the New York Harbor. What did you find most surprising in this research? Because it is not the trodden path for so many.
2: Yeah. Um, I think I was, I was surprised by how much there was to talk about. I think it just sort of in general terms, um, that, that there was a lot more ground to cover than I initially realized. Um, in terms of kind of specific things that happened, I think I was most shocked when I came to the realization that there were these men who ran these bureaucracies for multiple decades at a time, and that it was considered totally normal that, for example, the guy who ran the commissary general's office did it for forty-two years or whatever, um, or that the head of the topographical corps was there for thirty-two years, or that the quartermaster general was a guy who ran the office for forty years. And this was considered totally commonplace and unremarkable, in fact, to literally nobody remarked on it. I had to do the calculations and, and, uh, you know, that it, it just, it, it totally stunned me. Um, and that was one of the things that sort of really shaped my thinking about what was going on here was if this is literally unremarkable, then what does that mean for the way that the army was run here and the way all the political actors involved responded to the incentives of having these people running these important bureaus for decades
1: and and so I, I wanted to ask you one more question that um, that you talk about throughout the book in terms of the army as as sort of instrumental in sort of, contributing to the national collective good of the United States in this period. Um, And it prioritizes various economic decisions and outcomes that, as you say, were never really discussed. It just sort of does it because that's what they're doing. Um, But they operate as this kind of decision-maker for economic outcomes in lots of ways, social as well, but particularly economic outcomes. Um, and how did that contribute to, sort of, as you say in the book, the sort of jump starting the industrialization that happens after the Civil War?
2: Right. I, I think what's particularly interesting about all this is that, you know, it, it certainly was not a centrally planned, centrally directed effort. And again, I want to emphasize. Clearly, there were lots of debates over which parts of this should we do or should we not do. There were massive debates in American politics in this period about things like Henry Clay's proposed system of manufacturing across the country and Hamilton's plan of manufacturing and and paths not taken that might have changed the look of some of these. But even the people who opposed those most expansive efforts still wanted the army and agencies of the government to be building roads and helping with the railroads and dredging rivers. And, 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 you know, so Andrew Jackson is often, for example, seen as like an opponent of these internal improvements. Um, But the truth is the amount of spending that the federal government did on those projects grew during his administration. It's just that he turned more of it to the States that he wanted it to be in <laughs> and less to the States that he didn't want it to be in. It was distributive politics. Um, you know, so for, for, for his own supporters, um, everybody liked the idea of governmental largess helping them in some way. um, and then the specific questions of where these things are and how they occur is where it gets interesting in terms of what economic outcomes follow as a result. Um, and here I'm thinking, for example, of um, the national armories, which the army supported, um, you know, for their own reasons, obviously. Um, and and But also, um, when the army got involved in these, Uh, um, the Springfield Armory and many others, it eventually realized that the, the best way to do this was to have a uniform system where every armory produced the same things so that any armory's production could be used anywhere by anyone interchangeably with the others. And that system of interchangeable parts became massively influential in the nation, um, translating to the private sector because the engineers who had created those, the people who ran the armories, then took that knowledge and expertise into the private sector with them, copied what they had done at the armories and brought it into private commerce. And so now you've got this massive innovation happening across the private sector thanks to what the army did, um... And, and just because you want to be able to use all the bullets and all the guns, right? Um, and from there, we eventually get to, you know, Henry Ford, this part goes into that part, you know, kind of thing. Obviously, much further down the line, but, but, but it's that kind of idea, which starts with the army and then goes forward from there. Uh, there was an interesting monograph that came out about, about uh, um, the armories in particular that focused on that in a lot of granular detail by a historian, uh, Lindsay Regula, um, who is, I can't remember what university, she's out off the top of my head, but, um, and I think I, I managed to cite it because it came out as I was in the middle of doing the revisions for the final draft of the book. And I was able to pick some um, material out of there about that particular important uh, work that the army did. And that's just one of the areas that the army was involved in, in getting innovations to the private sector or innovations in management that translated from the armory at Harper's Ferry, which Merritt Rose Smith wrote about a long time ago, into the private sector. And and it's all these things that happen in a wide variety of areas.
1: And so now that you're an expert on the United States Army before the Civil War, because <laughs> <laughs> you are, um, Okay. what are you working on now, William?
2: Oh, boy. Big question. Um, I have a couple things in the works. Um, one of which uh, I'm working on a project with Julia Azari. At Marquette, um, on uh, the vice presidency and vice presidential selection and uh, the role of the political parties in that process and what VP selection tells us about the parties and how parties have changed. Um, we've got a few different pieces of that that we're juggling up in the air right now, and um, and uh, a couple of other potential projects that are kind of very much in uh, uh, embryonic stages. Let me phrase it that way. So I'm not quite ready for public consumption.
1: Well, I hope when one of these one of these projects comes to fruition, you will come back on the new books and talk to me about it.
2: Uh, I would love to, thank you.
1: It's been a pleasure to speak with William Adler today about Engineering Expansion, the U.S. Army and Economic Development, 1787 to 1860. This is published by University of Pennsylvania Press in 2021, and I believe it is available at the University of Pennsylvania Press website. Is there a brick-and-mortar store with an online presence to which you would like to give a shout-out? (laughs)
2: oh man um i don't know who has the book um i really need to 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 track it down Um, send people
1: to the university of pennsylvania we'll we'll send it to the the, the, the upenn
2: website that's the best place
1: thank you for joining me today william thank you so much